BC buckles under dangerous heat. It has been absolutely crazy busy. We've had a lot of people coming in with heat stroke. How the system failed with fatal consequences. Mask anxiety. Retailers, like the rest of the population, you know, don't know what to expect. Why shedding the face covering isn't as simple as it seems. And betting on pandemic recovery. We did have a lot of time to prepare. After being dealt a bad hand, casinos get ready for the return of gambling. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The full tragic picture of BC's deadly heat wave is clearer tonight after a sobering address from BC's chief coroner. Amadagahi has the grim numbers and a first-hand account of conditions in the ER during a heat wave and a pandemic. The death toll now tells the story most clearly. The heat wave that pushed local emergency services and departments to their limits and perhaps beyond was an extreme weather event. Its impacts were underestimated and still being documented. It is believed likely that the significant increase in deaths reported is attributable to the extreme weather BC has experienced. In BC, 486 possible heat-related deaths over five days, a significant increase. In Vancouver, of the 98 calls since Friday, two-thirds were people over 70. Burnaby saw 48 sudden deaths on Monday and Tuesday alone. And in Surrey, 59 sudden deaths over the same period during which last year, there were only nine. What we have seen here is, is absolutely un unprecedented. Um, I can tell you that uh, in the last five years in the entire province of British Columbia, there have only been three heat-related deaths. We know many did not make it to hospital. She had already, there was nothing left. There was no breathing, no pulse. But those that did walked into a situation described as total chaos. We're over, overwhelmed with people in the emergency room. We've got people lined up down the halls. It really just was a, a massively busy day in the emergency department. And, and obviously a, a high number of these patients are there with heat illness. So how are you coping with all this heat, Travis? The temperature has cooled, but this team of Surrey RCMP are constantly checking on people after what they saw on Monday. We went to a home that it was it was honestly hotter inside than it was outside and um, dealing with people with mental health um, struggles, they're unable to recognize that. In that case, officers were able to help cool that patient down. But for the many who may have succumbed to the same dangerous conditions across the province, there was probably no knock at the door when it mattered most. Amadagahi, Global News. And one death believed to be heat-related is hitting the hockey world hard today. Kamloops Blazers president and chief operating officer Don Moores has died. Moores died suddenly today while golfing. He was born and raised in Kamloops and played for the Kamloops Chiefs from 1973 to 76. He was also the Blazers assistant coach from 1985 to 90. He was 65 years old. Still more horror stories emerging from the growing crisis in B.C.'s emergency health services. As Jordan Armstrong reports, a paramedic and a dispatcher are speaking out anonymously to talk about the tragedies they see every day. We've heard of the public's extreme waits in getting through to 911 and then trying to speak with an overwhelmed ambulance dispatcher. Now we're hearing from a dispatcher directly. We've agreed to keep their identity a secret. 
The person was on shift during the deadly heat wave and writes, quote, calls that were triaged as red, which are considered to be immediately threatening to life, were typically taking two to three hours to get an ambulance. We are also hearing from a frontline paramedic who says they are shocked and appalled at what has occurred. The paramedic describes responding to patients hours after they had called for help, writing, they were still awake and breathing when they dialed 911. When I arrived, I found patients who had been in cardiac arrest for so long, there was zero chance of survival. The paramedic goes on to describe a call to a care home. Quote, I stopped to check on the other patients in the facility and found them deceased. I couldn't perform CPR on these patients because there were others who were still alive, who needed help just across the hall. What he's describing there is what we refer to as a mass casualty incident. Amanda Pearson was a BC paramedic until last year when she quit in frustration and relocated to Ontario. The system is fundamentally broken. You know, the the residents and and the people of BC are being let down. Her ideas for a fix take the ambulance service out of the Provincial Health Services Authority and offer more incentives to paramedics, such as hazard pay. Also, it's embarrassing that BCHS still, uh, as of last night, I'm pretty sure, refuses to declare a state of emergency. We reached out to the ambulance service but did not hear back by deadline. Michael Rowan's 87-year-old grandmother is now in hospital after falling and hitting her head Tuesday night. He says she waited on the floor, in pain, in sweltering heat for three hours until an ambulance showed up. What do you do in that situation except feel like really helpless you know what I mean and like you know there's points where my grandmother was crying and she was like are they even going to come we'll end this story with a final quote from the anonymous ambulance dispatcher when asked what they would say to the health minister and the premier they responded my message would be that people died because BCEHS is under-resourced understaffed and unprepared Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Well, the stunning death toll from this heat wave is focusing more attention on BC's preparedness or lack thereof for this extreme hot weather. As Aaron MacArthur reports, preventing tragedies like we've seen over the past few days will require major change. Unprecedented, historical, unimaginable. All words used to describe this week's heat wave. Climate scientists say it's time to shift our language and our focus. These types of events are likely to happen more intensely, more often. The link between climate change and heat events is clear. This is something that was predicted decades ago. We know that statistically a small shift in the mean temperature that we've been seeing um, increases the likelihood of these extreme events. Like everywhere across B.C., the city of Vancouver implemented its plan to deal with the heat. Cooling centers opened. (gasps) Misting stations turned on. The mayor admitting Wednesday, more needs to be done. And the province may be forced to treat heat events as provincial emergencies. We are working on uh, uh, a complete rewrite of the Emergency Program Act. My expectation is the events of this weekend with this unprecedented heat wave are also going to be factored into into that work in the development of the legislation. Long-term, cities will have to be built differently. More shade, more trees. Many of the deaths coming in housing without proper cooling. 
Only about 40% of British Columbian households have air conditioning. Building codes may need to be updated. It's a task long overdue, but will take decades to fully implement. We, we talk a lot about energy performance of our buildings. We don't talk that much about the resilience of the building. Buildings that are being built today are absolutely going to perform a whole lot better in hot conditions than the building that was built even 10 years ago. Building resiliency for hot weather, not something Canada has had to think about much until now. Will taxpayers be ready to accept governments spending money in order to beat the heat? Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Turning to COVID-19 now, and another milestone today. More than 5 million doses of vaccine have been administered in B.C., with 1.4 million of those as second doses. Here's a look at today's numbers. We have 44 new cases, bringing B.C.'s total to 147,621. 816 of those cases are active. 108 people are in hospital, 34 patients in the ICU, and another day of zero deaths. So that number stays at 1,754. Well, step three begins tonight at midnight, and with that, the end of the mandatory mask rule. But they are still recommended for people who are not fully vaccinated. And private businesses, transit, and public facilities like hospitals can continue to require them if they want. As you might expect, this patchwork approach could lead to confusion and even conflict. Richard Zussman reports. It's been a sign of BC's pandemic, a constant reminder since December you must wear your mask in indoor public spaces. On Thursday, that changes. Right now, even though the penalties are gone, uh, wearing masks in indoor public spaces is really important. The World Health Organization is still suggesting mandatory mask wearing and the top question for the public is why not wait in BC to ease this rule until more people are fully vaccinated? And if we look at what the WHO says, what we say in Canada, it really is our own personal risk and our own personal behaviours that are important. Retailers are private businesses, so they can choose not to require masks, but most are expected to keep them, at least for now. Retailers are anxious because retailers, like the rest of the population, you know, don't know what to expect. Before the mask mandate was put in in December, there was an increase in conflicts, mainly driven by people refusing to wear masks when asked. There is concern this could happen again. A retailer would be within their rights to refuse somebody entry. Generally, our perspective is to not uh, have um, fights, uh, and certainly we wouldn't want to put cus customers or employees in any danger. WorkSafe BC will keep working with businesses to ensure employees feel safe in the workplace. Should they need to call us, they can, and we'll respond to that. And, and if we can't uh, solve the issue over the phone, then we'll go to the work site. One place where masks still will be required is in the healthcare setting for staff and patients. It's really important that they understand that uh, our healthcare facilities are kind of on the front line of this pandemic. And it's really important that people respect the uh, mask mandate within our hospitals and our care homes. Beyond health care, the guidance is fully vaccinated. People don't need the masks. But the problem for businesses is they can't ask for proof. So ultimately, with any signage, no distinction will be made. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria.
bring in let's bring in Keith Baldry for more on this now. Keith, uh, as we heard in Richard's package, we lose that mask mm-hmm. mandate under the public health order tomorrow in BC, but other mm-hmm. parts of the world are reconsidering mask policies. Some bringing them back, and uh, that raises yeah. the question: Should health officials here be concerned? Yeah, so they're bringing them back in other jurisdictions because the Delta variant is a bit out of control in places like the UK, uh, Israel, and such. Uh, But one reason it's not out of control in BC, we're vaccinating younger people. We made the decision early on to get as many people first doses doses rather than two doses. As a result, younger people who get the virus uh, in disproportionately high numbers than other people, people in their 20s and 30s, are now getting vaccinated. But a little issue has emerged. The 30-year-olds are no longer uh, getting vaccinated as high as quickly as the 20-year-olds. Take a look at the numbers here. So you see the 30-year-old age group. Uh, it's good numbers, but, you know, the average, uh, wide average is more than 77%. Then take a look at the 20s. They are now much higher vaccinated than the 30-year-olds. In fact, the 18 to 24 uh, cohort is there in registrations at almost 75%, really dwarfing what's going on with the 30-year-olds. Dr. Bonnie Henry, today we caught up with her. She points out people in their 30s have a lot going on, very busy lives, but the push is on to get that age group vaccinated in much higher uh, numbers. Here's Dr. Henry. We know that people in their 30s and 40s, their parents, they're busy, they're working. So we have to look at convenience as a big important factor in that age group. We also know that that's an age group, um, you know, everywhere from your teens into your 30s that are very highly connected. And that's where we're seeing in the UK, for example, that they're seeing a lot of spread of the new variant, the Delta variant, in highly connected. So people who are are passing it around amongst each other, mostly in unvaccinated people. So that's where we want to put our push now. So this push is going to go on for some time. We'll see. We'll be tracking these numbers, of course, throughout the coming weeks to see if we can get those 30-year-olds higher when it comes to vaccination rates. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. The snap of the cards and the whir of the roulette wheel are about to come roaring back after being silenced nearly 16 months ago. Tomorrow, casinos will throw open their doors once again. Betting gamblers can't wait to come back. John Waugh shows us the significant changes coming to the gaming floor. There's no doubt when it comes to this pandemic. BC casinos have been dealt a tough hand. Of course, it's been a challenging 16 months for the industry. There's 10,000 people employed in the industry across all communities in British Columbia. During that time, the BC government insisted the combination of enclosed spaces and an often elderly clientele was too much of a gamble to consider any kind of casino reopening. It would be last on my list to consider for reopening at this point. Now with the province entering phase three of its restart plan on July 1st, The luck of casinos like the Hard Rock and Coquitlam is finally about to change. We did have a lot of time to prepare. We have really robust health and safety guidelines. That will mean a very different gambling experience. Staggered seating at slots and tables to ensure social distancing and barriers in place when it's not possible. Only card games that can be played face up are currently allowed. But our focus now is on a careful, slow restart so that we can keep our people and keep our players as safe as possible. That includes doubling down on a mandatory mask policy for all guests and staff, even though it will no longer be required by the province. We're not out of the pandemic yet. We know there's a light at the end of the tunnel as the vaccines roll out, and we want to make sure that we all get there together. 
It's a big deal for thousands of casino employees who've been waiting to be called back to work. We really won't know until everybody has had a chance to be recalled just how many people have left the industry. We also don't know how much of a financial hit a 16-month shutdown has had on government revenue. And while there was an uptick in lottery and online play during this pandemic, that doesn't compare to the funds that will once again be flowing from the casino floor. John Hua, Global News. Well, the PE is making a comeback this summer, but it will be a scaled-down version of the popular event. Organizers say with the province moving into step three of the restart plan, an in-person outdoor fair is now possible. The fair will operate at reduced capacity and with COVID-19 safety rules, but fairgoers will still be able to enjoy some of the most popular attractions. Whether it is all the elements of Playland, uh, the Revel District stage, which will have so many wonderful local um, artists, uh, bands uh, and performers on, on it. We will uh, have everything from the West Coast Lumberjack show to comedy shows and to, of course, the, it wouldn't be the Peony Fair without the Superdogs. The pared-down version of the fair will run from August 21st to September 6th. Tickets can be purchased online starting Friday. Perfect conditions for a wildfire breakout. And just as many have feared, that's exactly what we're getting. The fires of note sparking evacuation orders in some cases. Next on the News Hour. Painful memories of playing at Empire Stadium. The field's reputation former players can't forget. Later on the News Hour. And a shocking development in the Bill Cosby case. Why the disgraced comedian is out of prison long before his sentence was due to expire. That's later. We have some breaking news to tell you about right now. A fire has broken out near Boston Bar in the Fraser Canyon. The fire was sparked late this afternoon and a three-member wildfire crew has arrived on scene along with two firefighting helicopters. More crews are en route. The fire is burning about one kilometer north of Boston Bar along the railway tracks. And the wildfire service says it appears to be human-caused. Now, at least one B.C. forestry expert is warning the upcoming fire season is showing signs of being as bad as the worst years ever. Ted Chernecki has the latest on a season that's getting an early boost from this June heat wave. From a distance, with a sunset and time lapse in play, there's a certain beauty to what is really a very ugly affair within. This is the Sparks Lake Fire, 15 kilometers north of Kamloops Lake. The last we tracked it last night was 3,000 hectares, and it, it'll be significantly increased. Probably, I wouldn't be surprised if it doubles in size today. An evacuation order is in effect for 18 properties in the Copper Desert region, another 150 properties in the Deadman, Red Lake, Tranquil Valley, and Vedette Lake areas are on evacuation alert, meaning be ready to leave at any moment. We have places we can take our animals. We've had a lot of people calling us and offering, bring your horses here, bring your cattle here. Here's another time lapse showing the rapid spread of the McKay Creek Fire, 23 kilometers north of Lillooet. Oh, that's hot. That's hot. And this is what it looks like driving through it, as Corey Sterrett experienced it. Here, nine property owners along Pavilion Road have been ordered to leave. As we've been reporting, it's been insanely hot, especially in this part of the province. Hey, I mean, this heat is ridiculous. Uh, they're suggesting that you don't even need a, a, a spark. 
uh, or you don't need ignition, you, just a spark will light, light this place up and it feels that way. We're, we're burning up here, man. This is crazy. Now the weather's expected to change in the next few hours. Our big concern right now is coming out of this heat wave and the resulting um, lightning that, um, we are pre- that we are preparing for. That lack of rain in May and June and this intense heat has left most of the province the proverbial powder keg. Well, I was comparing fire danger maps this morning and quite honestly, the fire danger map for today looks like the fire danger maps from August of 2017 and 2018. And remember, those were our record-breaking summers when we burned 1.2 million hectares of forest in each of those two years. The 4,000-hectare Sparks Lake Fire near Kamloops, the 5,000-hectare McKay Creek Fire near Lillooet, and the smaller George Road Fire south of Lytton are all believed to be human-caused. A fourth large fire burning near Prince George appears to have been started by lightning. Ted Chernaki, Global News. Well, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us with more on the potential for thunderstorms and lightning, increasing the risk of even more wildfires in some regions. Christy? Yeah, so lightning is the absolute worst thing that we need right now. We uh, Let's have a quick look at the current situation. We have 51 new fires burning across the province. 50% of those, half, are lightning caused. 25% avoidable person caused, by the way. So we have really skyrocketed in terms of our fire activity. Here's the reason why with the lightning strikes across the region today, uh, looking at them, we've got severe thunderstorm watches and warnings in effect, and you can see lightning strikes all across across the region. There is a chance these will shift tomorrow across southern BC with a risk of severe thunderstorms there and a number more lightning strikes. Even though the action is in through the central interior today, it won't stay there. We're expecting it to shift south. Chris, back to you. Much. More unmarked graves, this time near Cranbrook. This is a validation of what the survivors have been saying. The unfolding tragedy at St. Eugene Mission coming up on the news hour. Also, the Royal BC Museum prepares for the future by confronting its past. The big changes coming later. Following the discovery last month in Kamloops, the Lower Kootenai Band launched a ground-penetrating radar search of the former site of the St. Eugene's Residential School near Cranbrook. And now the band says that search has revealed 182 unmarked graves. Catherine Urquhart reports. Thousands of Indigenous children were forced to attend St. Eugene's Mission School near Cranbrook from the early 1900s until the 1970s. Now, First Nations in the area say they have made a heartbreaking discovery near the former residential school. The suspected remains of 182 people. According to the Lower Kootenai Band, the suspected remains were found using ground-penetrating radar, with some graves believed to be only three to four feet below the surface. The discovery is said to be in the early stages. It comes after it was announced that to Kamloops to Schwepmek First Nation near Kamloops located 215 suspected remains. And the Cowessis First Nation in Saskatchewan found 751 suspected remains. National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations says the burial sites confirm what residential school survivors have been saying for years. This is a validation of what the survivors have been saying, that there are unmarked graves and that there has been death in these these institutions. 
St. Eugene's Mission Residential School is now St. Eugene Golf Resort and Casino. The two Nah people choosing to turn the location into an economic generator, while at the same time acknowledging the horrors that happened here. They had been hurt so badly. Their family had been hurt so badly that they thought it was better if we just knocked it off the face of the earth. Those deep wounds now reopened with the findings of remains near the former residential school. BC had the most residential schools in Canada. So I am, I would surely believe that there will be more unmarked graves to be uncovered. The Lower Kootenai Band says there are living survivors of St. Eugene's and it's requesting privacy on their behalf. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Well, this news can be very difficult to process and triggering for some. You can get help 24-7 through the National Residential School Survivor Hotline. The number's on your screen, 1-866-925-4419. Another Catholic church has been set on fire, this one just outside Edmonton. The fire at the St. Jean-Baptiste Parish Church in Morinville, Alberta, is believed to be suspicious. It broke out just after 3 a.m. Wednesday, gutted the church and caused the evacuation of several nearby homes and businesses, including a senior center. Four small Catholic churches on indigenous lands here in B.C. have also been destroyed recently by suspicious fires. Well, the leadership of the Royal BC Museum is promising wholesale change after an investigation and staff survey found the institution failed to protect its workers from discriminatory behavior. The museum has been under the microscope since the resignation of an Indigenous staff member last summer who described a toxic workplace and an institution that remains too focused on a colonial past. Kylie Stanton reports. After 135 years, BC's flagship museum has hit its breaking point. We must do better. Leadership now promising change is coming after a staff survey and independent investigation confirmed widespread reports of a toxic racist work environment and discrimination. To be frank, these two reports show that we are not the museum we wanted to be and we're not the museum we should be. The institution has been under scrutiny since Lucy Bell, the former head of the Indigenous Collections and Repatriation Department, resigned last summer, saying she had experienced microaggressions and harassment. Her concerns echoed by others, like Troy Sebastian. The museum needs to take responsibility for the fact that it continues to deny that systemic racism exists. In February, the museum's longtime CEO, Jack Lohman, stepped down and the investigation got underway. The new board chair now publicly apologizing. We're here today to apologize and to talk about what happened and what is next. That's laid out in this 33-page report. It plans to align museum operations with BC's commitment to the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act create a new facility to provide the community with increased access, recruit a new CEO, and fill other positions with equity, diversity, and inclusion in mind, modernizing the museum site while replacing galleries with new exhibits that include the voices and history of all people in BC. It is long overdue, and I just really hope we can start quickly. Luann Neal is confident the changes will be made. She doesn't plan on leaving until that happens. We have new staff 
starting in the coming months, and I don't want any of them to have to experience what I experienced. Mizuka admits the museum has a long way to go, but remains committed to turning the page and starting a new chapter in its history. We have a lot of work to do. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. The Vancouver Police Board has released a number of resolutions to address systemic racism in the force. The board vice chair, Faye Whiteman, says it's working on being more transparent with the procedures being implemented. A number of resolutions include engaging an external consultant and recognizing that despite a number of positive steps, the VPD is built on a foundation of structural racism and colonization. Earlier this month, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, who serves on the board, called out the department's lack of action on the issue. The education, the, the training, the orientation, the review of policy and procedures um, that, that the VPD is doing and that we have been overseeing is quite impressive. I think that, as I mentioned, we probably just should communicate it more uh, so that people don't just see the one side of it, but actually see what is being done and has been getting done for quite a while. I'm really pleased that the police board listened to the community for whom the fact of systemic racism is a daily reality. And I'm also pleased the police board says that as anti-racism and decolonization efforts will be at the forefront of their priorities from now on. Vancouver's Chief Constable Adam Palmer has repeatedly rejected the suggestion of systemic racism within the VPD despite a number of high-profile incidents. Up ahead, Bill Cosby walks free. Why his conviction for sexual assault was tossed out. And wicked heat in Williams Lake, how it's impacting the healthcare system there. Traffic is steady north and south over here on Highway 99 to and from the Massey Tunnel. Keep in mind, overnight maintenance causes some intermittent lane closures between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. Welcome to the electric future. Be among the first to reserve the all-new 2022 Bolt EUV or the redesigned 2022 Bolt EV. Request your reservation today. Visit ChevroletOffers.ca. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global One high above Massey Tunnel. We have some very concerning breaking wildfire news right now. The town of Lytton is being evacuated. The McKay Creek Fire has moved into the town. Officials with the Thompson-Nicola Regional District say the entire community is now at risk. A number of buildings are now on fire. Uh, the story obviously developing, but as we know, Lytton broke uh, all-time Canadian heat records in over the last three consecutive days. So, uh, you know, a very concerning situation, as Chris mentioned there. Uh, we will keep on top of the situation. We'll bring you more details as they come into our newsroom. But again, the town of Lytton has been evacuated. And until we get more details, a shocking turn of events in one of the biggest celebrity trials in recent memory. Nearly three years after comedian Bill Cosby was found guilty of sex assault, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has overturned his conviction, and he's now a free man. We love you, Mr. Cosby! Tonight, Bill Cosby is a free man. His conviction tossed out, his record wiped clean. He cannot be retried. He appeared briefly before reporters outside his home. The day innocence came to Mr. Cosby. Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that the decision to charge Cosby with sexual assault in 2015 was an affront to fundamental fairness, and the prosecution violated Cosby's due process. 
Late today, Cosby calling into a radio show. This is for all the people who have been imprisoned wrongfully, regardless of race, color, or creed. Mm-hmm. Because I, I met them in there. The 83-year-old was serving a 3- to 10-year sentence in maximum security prison after a jury found him guilty in 2018 of sexually assaulting Andrea Constant. At the time, Cosby's other accusers celebrated the verdict outside the court. I feel like I'm dreaming. Can you pinch me? Constant, a former Temple University employee, said Cosby drugged and sexually assaulted her in his Pennsylvania home in 2004. Cosby said the interaction was consensual. In 2005, the district attorney at the time, Bruce Castor, who later would go on to be one of President Trump's impeachment attorneys, did not bring charges. Castor testified that there was not enough evidence, but instead he made a verbal agreement not to prosecute Cosby if he would give a deposition in Constance civil case. That same deposition became the basis for a new DA to charge him 10 years later, days before the statute of limitations expired. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court says prosecutors broke the promise. Tonight, a spokesman for Cosby said this is justice and justice for black America. One of the prosecutors from the trial, Kristen Gibbons Fedden, firing back. I'm disturbed, I'm distressed that they are again exploiting our thirst for justice in his name. The heat enveloping the interior of the province is causing issues for health care workers in Williams Lake. Caribou Memorial Hospital was forced to call a code orange on Tuesday night due to an increase of patients with heat-related illness. A code orange is used to quickly mobilize additional staff and physicians. Interior Health says enough staff were available to provide appropriate care for those in the emergency department. Still ahead, remembering the old Empire Stadium. And we can't stress the importance of this game. The venue that ushered in the modern era and why not all memories are good ones for the teams that played there. And later in sports, Bo knows how to hit. Why the BC Lions are happy he's back on their team. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at that forecast. A really concerning wildfire situation out there, Christy. Yeah, we just had an incredibly record-breaking heat wave, dry conditions, and now lightning. It's just the worst-case scenario. Sophie, let me quickly show you the temperatures. We had relief here along the coast. You probably felt it this morning when you woke up. Boy, what relief. And that was in the, the case in the interior near Lytton as well. Yesterday, 49. Today, 39. So they didn't break a fourth all-time record today. And those of you there are probably breathing a sigh of relief. But look at through the southern interior. We're still talking about low to mid-30s there. Record breaking conditions there as well. Kamloops hitting 46 degrees and West Kootenai regions 41. They are going to see relief tomorrow though dropping down to the high 30s. So still very hot but not record breaking like today. There are the severe thunderstorms that are continuing so we're really concerned about the ones near Prince George uh, pushing across uh, Highway 16 as well as Highway 97 east of say, uh, 100 Mile House right now. Uh, nickel size hail, uh, sorry dime size hail as well as lightning 
lightning strikes, which is the worst case scenario. Now, as we head into tomorrow, that pulse pushes further north, but then we start to see some instability shifting across southern BC. So uh, the um, Shuswap region, the Kootenai region, as well as the Columbia area under a uh, potential severe thunderstorm watch tomorrow with a ton of lightning strikes expected. And that's the case you can see right across most of southern BC. Now, for our region, we'll see a little bit more cloud cover tomorrow. It's certainly going to be a lot cooler, and you'll feel that cloud and cooler condition in through the morning hours with a very slight chance of showers. Still no rain in the forecast as far as we can see, Sophie, other than those isolated thunderstorms in the interior, and those bring isolated rainfall. Not enough to really make a difference. Not enough at all. All right, thanks for that, Christy. Disappointing. Okay, uh, lots going on across the uh, the province right now. We need a distraction. Squires here with a look ahead to sports. Okay, I'll distract you. <laughs> um, we'll talk about some hockey, of course, game two in the Stanley Cup final. BC Lions training camp is getting very close. We have some news about the Lions and what happened at Wimbledon today. Look forward to all of that. Thank you, Squire. Also coming up, the beautiful but bruising Empire Stadium. Why sometimes it's a painful walk down memory lane for those who played there. You are a welcome distraction, Squire. <laughs> Thank you very much. I pre that is the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. <laughs> You are a distraction, a but a welcome <laughs> one. Uh, okay, it's game two of the Stanley Cup final between Montreal and Tampa Bay. Now, in game one, Tampa put five goals behind Carey Price, which is the most he has allowed in this year's playoffs. So the key for Montreal to bounce back and win game two is not just a better Carey Price, that would help, but also a better start for the Habs. So let's go and see how Carey Price and Montreal have done so far in Tampa. Well... Kerry gets some help here from Jesperi Kokaniemi. He blocks a shot, and he feels it. Other end, Andre Vasilevsky, save, save, save to Foley, Suzuki, Caulfield in a row. First goal of the game, it's Anthony Sorelli. Just finds its way through, but Nick Suzuki has tied it for Montreal 1-1 in the second period. July 11th, BC Lions players hit the field in Kamloops for their first training camp in over two years and when they start training again there will be some familiar faces from 2019 including their starting quarterback who from this day forward will no longer be Mike Riley. He's gone back to his given name of Michael and he's doing that for a very good reason. Uh, my mom hated that people called me Mike. Uh, we got into big arguments about it. Um, she always said what does your birth certificate say? Uh, you know, I named you Michael. I, I wish that you would go by that. And, uh, you know, it was kind of jokingly, but she was serious about it. She, uh, she was very upset with me a lot of the time that uh, I went by Mike and my mom. For anybody that doesn't know it, most people do. She passed away in March. So this was kind of uh, just a way to honor her wishes, to be honest. That's the perfect reason. Uh, this year, another familiar face with the Lions. Bola Combo is back. He should be a big part of their defense. Second in the yard, it is Wayne Moore. It's a big play. With one of the hits of the year. I hope our defense plays the way he played the last time when um, you know he was playing for the Alouettes. Plays plays like you want it played, fast, aggressive, hustling around, making things happen. And those are all the characteristics we want um, 
on our defense. Bo Lacumbo has delivered big hits no matter what jersey he's wearing. But in all honesty, Lacumbo and Lions colors is the best look. Drafted by BC 21st overall in the 2013 draft, Lacumbo spent four seasons with the Lions before heading to Montreal in 2019. Now that he's back where it all began, look for Lacumbo to play a major role in helping resurrect Leo's defensive line that's been completely rebuilt heading into this season. I think it's always a bonus um, when when you can get a good collection of uh, some local guys. It brings an extra amount of uh, pride to the whole situation. So I think he checks a lot of boxes, and um, I think he's going to come in here hungry and ready to, to prove himself. So looking forward to working with him. Being able to be here, you know, um, my family and uh, being home, you know, it's, it's, it's a great feeling and, and I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm ready to contribute. And, you know, I think this year we have a solid, uh, we have a solid roster and I, I think guys are going to be hungry to come out and win the game. Dennis Shapovalov is on to the third round at Wimbledon and he didn't even have to put on anything white. Didn't have to play. His opponent, Pablo Andujar, had a rib injury and couldn't get out there. Uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime won his first-round match today. However, BC's uh, Vashik Pospisil lost his second-round match. Also, Canada's highest-ranked player on the women's side, number 5 Bianca Andrescu, was sent packing. She was taking on Elise Cornet. Cornet played well, no doubt about it. Little drop shot here that fools Andreescu. She can't get to it in time. Now, Bianca is not a great grass player yet, but she did make a lot of mistakes today. Here's one of them. And you will ask her, she will ask herself a question after it's over. Yes, why did you hit it in the net? She, like uh, we saw with Serena Williams yesterday, having problems staying on her feet. The grass is still a little bit wet. At Wimbledon, luckily she didn't get hurt. But for some, it's like playing on marbles rather than grass. Here's another moment that Andrescu goes down. It's kind of a metaphor for the way things went for her today as she went down in straight sets to Cornet. And that's a bit of a surprise, and this is a nice shot. Yep, that ends it. Cornet on to the next round, and Bianca is going home. Oh, Canada's men's basketball team, another big win today at the Olympic qualifying tournament over Victoria, 109-79 against China. They're 2-0 now. Great to know. Thanks, Squire. Up next, how the old Empire Stadium really left its mark on the athletes who played there. All right, returning now to our breaking news involving a wildfire that has forced the evacuation of the entire town of Lytton at this hour. That's right. A nearby fire has moved into the town. Officials with the Thompson-Nicola Regional District say the entire community, which is about 250 people, is at risk. There are reports a number of buildings are now on fire and parts of Highway 1 are currently closed. So if you are anywhere in the Lytton town site you are asked to get out of town get to safety as quickly as you can 
Sounds like this one has been moving very quickly. We'll keep on top of details and have them for you on BC1 throughout the evening. All right, we're talking about the old Empire Stadium, Squire, and it's uh, painful memories. Yes, um, there were some good ones. There were some painful ones. This is an Empire Field, the temporary stadium from about 10 years ago. This is the original Empire Stadium we're talking about. Of all the bygone stadiums in Vancouver, none produce more memories than the one that used to stand right here at the corner of Cassiar and Hastings, Empire Stadium. Built originally for the Empire Commonwealth Games in 1954, it became the focus of the world when Roger Bannister and John Landy both ran sub-four-minute miles in the same race, a moment that is immortalized in this statue. And speaking of immortals and Empire Stadium... Both the Beatles and before that, Elvis Presley played Empire. But most of its time was spent as the home of the BC Lions and the Vancouver Whitecaps. Up until 1982. You know, to come out, especially on days like this, and uh, play uh, in such a setting, was, uh, it was just fantastic. You just loved coming there every day. But when you were in that stadium and looking out uh, to the North Shore Mountains... Uh, on a summer's day or even in the fall, it's a spectacular. But to be honest, there were some things that weren't spectacular about Empire Stadium, especially the artificial turf they put in to replace the original grass. Worse than the CFL and the worst I've ever played on, actually. After you played a game at Empire Stadium, you felt like you were in a bad car wreck. And that's because the turf was so thin. If you lift it up, yeah, it's, it's that, and then there's blacktop underneath. So you're essentially training, on, uh, training and playing on concrete. They, they would slide on the turf and all the skin would come off and you a grown man screaming in the showers and stuff. Basically, Empire Stadium wasn't maintained and updated. And so at the young age of 28, it was considered out of date, and in 1983, it was replaced by the new dome downtown. But let's not end on a sad note. Despite all the soreness from the players and the soreness from sitting on those old wooden benches, Empire could be beautiful. If this was the capper, the fact that I'm playing in this building in front of 32,000 plus people on a regular basis, having grown up a, a stone's throw away, it didn't get much better than that. The good right. old days. Yeah, the good old days. Keep, keep it right here for the latest on the uh, fire in the village of Lytton. A lot of people being evacuated to Spence's Bridge. We'll have all the details for you throughout the evening. And tonight on News Our Final at 11 with Colleen. Have a good night, all.